My name is Sharon Hargrave, and I am the Executive Director for the Boone Center for the Family. We have a passion at the Boone Center for the Family, and the passion that we have at the Boone Center for the Family is, as leaders, uh, we can only lead as well as we can handle topics that we share with other people. If we have a marriage that's struggling, it's hard to help somebody else have a good marriage. If we have a parenting relationship that's difficult, it's hard to help somebody else know how to parent. You as church leaders, whether you're lay leaders or pastors, you're the place people love to come when they have a problem. I read a statistic not too long ago that said one third of all people, when they first learn about a serious mental illness, the first place they go is their church. That's serious mental illness. That doesn't take into account the people that come to church to talk about their marriage or their parenting or those kinds of things. So the programs that we have at the center um, uh, deal a lot with learning how to be healthy in relationships ourselves, while we also learn how to help other people be healthy in their relationships as well. We have a program for 18 to 28 year olds called Relationship IQ. We have a program for adults called Marriage Strong and Relate Strong, both for married couples and for individuals that help us learn how to be healthy in relationships. We have information at the back of the uh, room here to share with you for, to learn about any of those programs. I'm the one speaking this session. I've been here all week introducing people. Uh, what I would tell you about myself is that I've been here at the Boone Center for the Family at Pepperdine for five years. Previous to coming to Pepperdine, I am also, on Tuesday every week, affiliate professor at Fuller Theological Seminary, where I teach uh, in the Marriage and Family Therapy Department. Prior to coming to California 10 years ago, I lived in Amarillo, Texas. Uh, in Amarillo, Texas, I had a private practice as a licensed marriage and family therapist. And when my husband and I went into practice in Amarillo, we tried to keep it a secret that we were Christians because we first wanted to be seen as professionals. But when you live in a city the size of Amarillo, Texas, pretty soon people know you're Christians. And so we ended up probably 80 to 90% of our client load in our private practice were Christians. And so I know a lot about Christians and what they struggle with. And I'm thankful and I was glad to deal with uh, a lot of Christians in my private practice. It's just that we went into a private practice in the world in a time and a day when biblical counseling meant more bang you over the head with your Bible than to really help you deal with some painful issues. So I know a lot about what Christian leadership struggle with just through my years in the therapy room. And I'm really excited to share with you this topic today about feeling safe in an unsafe world. Um, I'm a news junkie. I love the news. I actually live in Pasadena and drive to Malibu three days a week. So I have a two to three hours in the car every day uh, to listen to whatever I want to listen to or talk on the phone or whatever it is I do. But I love to listen to the news. Um, uh, mesmerized by our political process. I'm thankful that I live in a country that has a two-party system that allows us to swing one direction too far and when we swing that direction too far 
the masses come to vote and we swing us back the other direction to hear from people who feel like we've missed something. And so through the years, I've loved to listen to the news. I've loved to follow political process. I've loved to just be aware of what's going on in the world until lately. I hate to turn the radio on because I just do not want to hear about one more war where people's lives have been minimalized and lost. I don't want to hear about one more shooting at a high school. I do not want to hear about one more political leader or entertainer that's been caught in a sexual crime. I do not want to hear about one more group that's been minimalized by somebody's quote or some young person who's committed suicide because of bullying. It's almost scary to turn the news on because it's not so much anymore about learning what's going on in the world and seeing how the world is balancing itself out. It's about a lot of scary things that are going on. And statistics would tell us anxiety and depression is on the rise in America like never before. In our colleges, in our universities, loneliness, depression, anxiety, in our adult populations, anxiety and depression is on the rise. So the question then becomes, what are we as church leaders going to tell people about safety. When someone comes to us and they're struggling and they don't feel like they can trust God, what do we say? How do we answer that question? Because it feels like everything is out of control. And the answer, God's going to be with you, just doesn't seem to help us too much anymore. We have to put more meaning and we have to put more meat around that in order for people to really believe that with us. We have to talk, I think, from three specific areas. I think we have to talk from our own experience. If you're not talking as a leader from your own experience, you're missing a, a, a great uh, opportunity to share your life. We also have to talk about the scientific evidence of what we know and what we're learning about how our mind works. We're learning so much in the field of neuroscience about how we think. And we have to talk about things from a scriptural perspective. Because one of those things independent of the other is not going to help people as much. It's not going to resonate with them as much. I went to a conference this year and I heard a Christian psychiatrist speak, a man by the name of Tim Jennings. And I wrote on your very limited uh, handout that I wrote, gave you all. He said this, we, what we believe has power over us, but we have power over what we believe. Now think about that for a minute. I think for years we haven't been able to grasp that our mind or what we have here actually has control over our brain. 
you know, our brain is a reactive organ. It responds to fear. It responds to things. And sometimes we feel like we don't have control over what we think. But more and more in neuroscience, they're telling us we have control over what we think. And we can actually change our brain and change our brain patterns. Oh, did Paul ever talk about that? over and over and over again in scripture. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I think that involves more than scripture memory. It involves beginning to think about what am I going to think? How am I going to think about safety in a world that feels so unsafe? Because if I don't get a handle on how I'm going to think about those things, it's going to get a handle on me, right? What we believe has power over us, but we have power over what we believe. So I just want to take, uh, I, I want to I do a little experiment here. And what I want to tell you is one thing that we've learned about the brain is in order for our brains to work really well, we have to be aware of what we're doing. And sometimes the best way to be aware of what you're thinking is to say it out loud, okay? Because when you say something out loud, the amygdala, the mid part of your brain, is the part of your brain that goes, ah! it goes kind of crazy sometimes. But when you say something out loud and it comes out of your mouth and goes back into your ears, it moves into the prefrontal cortex part of your brain and you can think about what you're going to do about it in a different way. So I want you to take two minutes and I want you to look at somebody sitting near you in groups of two or three. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell the person next to you why safety is an important issue for you. Okay? Two minutes.
Okay, couple more seconds. Wrap up your conversation. Okay. Now, what you've done is you've just clearly defined to yourself why safety is an important issue to you. And when you're working with somebody that comes into your office or that you're drinking coffee with that says, I just feel anxious all the time, it's very important that you start out by helping them define what is it that makes me afraid? What am I afraid of? Our pastor said a couple of summers ago, he said, you cannot change what you will not name. So it's really important that our initial step in our own anxiety and in the anxiety of the people that we lead and serve, that we help them define what it is that they're afraid of. So I wanna tell you a little bit about my journey in safety because your experience is important in order to help minister to others. But I was actually born in Burbank, California. I was the fourth child, the only girl, the prized possession, they would say. My husband, when he tells my story, says he was, I was kind of like the Lion King cub. Here she is, the girl. My dad was in the advertising business in North Hollywood, and he was successful in the advertising business, and this family I was born into was amazingly fun. I know that because we have film, and I have no idea what kind of camera my parents carried around between 1957 and 1960, but we have film of my family. My dad and my brothers at the beach, my dad and my brothers playing baseball, my dad and my brothers playing tennis, my dad and my brothers playing football, my dad and my brothers at Disneyland. You never see my mother. You know where she is, right? She's the one behind the camera. And somewhere in this picture, somewhere in this film, in rolls the stroller, and voila, there she is. And they run over, and they hug me, and they kiss me, and I know in that film, I know I am deeply loved. But part of the reason that my dad was so successful in the advertising business is because he was bipolar. They didn't know what bipolar disorder was in 1960, but fortunately for my dad, he lived most of his life a little manic, and so he was really creative and could really do well in business. But in 1960, when I was three years old, he hit a depression he could not figure out how to get out of. So he decided to solve that problem by committing suicide. Now this left my mother, who had grown up in Oklahoma, in Southern California, to raise four children by herself. And she didn't want to do that. So she packed us up and she moved us back across the country to Amarillo, Texas. That's the accent, right? And we've been back in Amarillo about nine months, and my oldest brother then, Bruce, who was 13 years old at the time, started not feeling very well. And we thought he just had the flu. But he came to my mom one day and he said, I think there's something else wrong with me. 
And so my mother called the doctor, and the doctor said, let's meet at tomorrow. Let's meet at the hospital in the morning. But unfortunately, they never made it to the hospital because he died in the night, and he died of acute leukemia. Again, in 1961, had they known on Friday what was going to happen to him, he, they probably couldn't have saved his life. But it was a very sudden, very tragic death. And I wish I could tell you that was the last time that happened to my family. But it was not. Nine years later, my, brother was a, my oldest brother, David, was a student at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, Oklahoma. And we got a call one night, and my brother and his date had not come home. And we got in our car in Amarillo, Texas. We drove to Oklahoma. By the time we got to Oklahoma, they found my brother and his date, and he'd been murdered and left in the car the night before. In 10 years, three very sudden, very tragic deaths. And even then, I wish I could say, but since then, life has been great. Well, my oldest brother, my only remaining brother, suffered from bipolar disorder. He also had um, some times in his life where he felt so depressed he wanted to commit suicide. Fortunately, he did not. They knew what bipolar disorder was, were thankful for lithium, and some things that had been really helpful to him. My mom was an amazing woman, and my mom uh, did a lot of things well. But it would not surprise you in any way to know that she began to deal with her pain toward the end of her life with alcohol. And so as we walked into uh, a relationship with alcohol, what also started creeping in was Alzheimer's. And we didn't know the difference between Alzheimer's and alcohol. And so we had a nine-year walk with Alzheimer's. Um, by the time my mom died, she could not walk and she could not talk. And for those of you that have walked that unfortunate journey of Alzheimer's, you know if you die of Alzheimer's, you starve to death and you die of thirst because your body forgets how to swallow and process food. So do you understand why safety might be an issue for me? You know, you can really connect to the fact that I am a person that has a hard time with safety. I am a person who's had to struggle with that issue of where is God sometimes? I spoke at a addiction conference uh, about a year and a half ago, and uh, this guy came up to me at break, and he said, I'm amazed that you aren't an addict. <laughs> and I'd never thought of it that way. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that is pretty amazing. And then I had this other experience. I'm actually a Biola graduate. I came back to the land of my birth for college. And when I was at Biola, I was asked to do this experiment where I was asked to draw my family table when I was six years old. Now, my family table when I was six years old, I'd experienced the death of my father and the death of my oldest brother, Bruce. So I sit down to draw this family table, and I'm drawing this picture of this family table, and I draw a happy picture. 
I draw my brother, David, who was still alive at the time, in blue because he reminded me of blue skies and oceans and everything beautiful. I drew my brother John in green because he reminded me of pleasant green pastures. I drew my mother in yellow because she was sunshine. I put this big umbrella over the whole table and that was God. And then in the exercise, we were to share our family table with the people in our group. <laughs> and the people in, our, in my group started sharing all these stories with these angry dark lines and these red people and these cutoffs. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm listening to their story. And I'm thinking, if anybody in this room should be upset about this picture, <laughs> it should be me. And I'm not. And what has made the difference in my life and where I've been? Well, I would tell you that was Christ. When I was 13 years old, after my brother died, uh, I'd, go I'd gone to church all my life. But as when I was 13 years old, I had a friend of mine share with me that Jesus actually wanted a personal relationship with me. And somehow, at that time, a relationship with a God who would not die, who would be with me forever, sounded pretty amazing to that 13-year-old girl. And I remember the night I accepted Christ just like it was yesterday. I remember in Amarillo, Texas, standing out in front of my house with the stars of the Texas sky. And I think even on that night, I don't believe everybody has to have a moment, but I have a moment. And I'm re I believe on that night, I even knew then, it was changing my life forever. So Christ came into my life, but with Christ and with my home church, I had people around me. I had men who fathered me. I had people who knew my family story. I look back and I look at the community of the people of the church I grew up in, and they were there for me. When I was 13 years old, an organization called Young Life came into my middle school. And we had Bible studies, and we had core groups. And so Christ was not only at church on the weekends, Christ was at school during the week, and I built community with friends. It was popular to be a Christian in my middle school. And then there was a Christian camp outside of Amarillo, Texas, called Hidden Falls Ranch. And the directors of Hidden Falls Ranch, we called them Uncle John and Aunt Betty. <laughs> Automatic family every summer when I went to youth camp because Uncle John and Aunt Betty were there. So one of the first things I want to talk to you about is when we're helping people create safety, we want to create community that will help them feel safe. Community is a critical part of helping other people feel safe. You know, Galatians tells us that we are to bear one another's bur burdens, Galatians 6. And I think sometimes we feel like we're to judge one another's burdens and not bear one another's burdens. You know, I didn't know for many years, 
and I'm thankful I didn't know. But I didn't know for many years that my family got a stigma when we had somebody in my family that was murdered. It was kind of thought as a, well, there must be something kind of wrong with you. Your brother must have been doing something wrong. You know, the truth is, my brother and his date were parking. So that was in all the newspapers and that was in all the stories. And somebody could have been pretty judgmental about the fact that they were out on a country road somewhere doing something that Christians would think was not very good, maybe. And people could have locked us out because of that. Some people think people have mental illness because they just don't have enough faith in God. Not so. Bipolar disorder is hereditary. It's hereditary in my family. I've watched my cousins deal with it, my brothers deal with it, my nieces deal with it, my nephews deal with it. It is real. And I need a church community that's going to come around me and make me feel safe no matter what my trauma is about. My mother was an alcoholic. My church still loved her. They loved her for years, and they understood her pain, and they embraced her. And if you've cared for somebody with Alzheimer's, you know they get to that point where they don't wash their hair so much, and their clothes are on inside out. And, we would, and I would stop by the care home to pick my mother up to take her on church on Sunday morning, and she'd have her dress on inside out, and maybe her hair didn't look so great. And some mornings I had time to do something about that, and some mornings we just picked her up, and we took her to church just like she was. And people still loved her because they'd walked the journey with her. So we want to develop communities that help bear one another's burdens even if even if the burden is because something that some people might consider sin or wrong the second thing in building community that we really have to be aware of is that people that have been through something hard tend to isolate it's natural we have this feeling that Nobody knows or nobody understands what I'm feeling. Now, I want to say this as gently as I know how, but nobody has ever experienced anything that nobody else has experienced. <laughs> you know? Death of a child is a big one. If you've experienced the death of a child, there's a pain there that feels deeper than any deep pain that you could ever imagine. People a lot of times who've experienced the death of a child feel like nobody knows my pain. Nobody knows that absence. But I think as church leaders, the best thing that we can do is connect people to other people who have experienced what they're experiencing. Okay? So if I know somebody in my church who's had the death of a child, then I can also connect them to other people in their church, uh, other people in my church that have experienced the death of a child. And it's really, really helpful in community that you know that you're not alone. I can tell this story publicly because they told it th themselves. They told us this story this week to my board. 
but we had some people that came through the Marriage Strong program. They are pastors uh, at the Mount Sinai Baptist Church in Compton, California. Calvin and Pam Kressel, they're amazing people. They've been bivocational for years, uh, being a pastor and first lady of the church, and Calvin works for the FBI, and Pam works for the IRS bivocationally. NBC is actually connected with them to do a kind of series uh, called The Spirit of the Law that they're working on a pilot program for. It'll be fascinating if it comes out, but connecting that law with the ministry that they've had in the church. Well, Pam, Pam and Calvin came and they went through our Marriage Strong program, and in our Marriage Strong program, we help people begin to identify their own destructive coping. Yes, we as church leaders have our own destructive coping, and we help people begin to understand how they can connect to other people as well. Well, Pam and Calvin have five children, um, two of which are their biological children, three children that they raised after the death of Pam's sister, and then they've just recently taken on another child, a sixth child, after the death of Calvin's sister. They um, came to us, and they, their, their children are so successful. They're all across the country. They work in Washington, D.C. They're so successful. They have one child, though, who was a performer and was on tour in Australia and got caught up in some bad stuff and ended up in jail because of... Uh, selling drugs and as leaders of their church they'd been hiding that because they didn't know what to do with that and so people would be asking them so how's your son how's Australia and they'd be saying fine he's fine our son's fine and they'd been carrying that for a year and a half and they came to us and they got to know my husband Terry and I and they said what do we do with this we feel like we need to tell our church they said that to us, and we supported them in that, in the middle of Compton, California. So the week after they were here, they were here for one thing, and then they came back and did another seminar that we have, and they came back and they said, this is the week we're going to tell our church. And they called me the next week, and they said the outpouring and the love and the care of our congregation when we told them about our son was amazing. They put their arms around us. They've loved us. They've felt our pain. And you know what else happened? Can anybody else guess what else happened? Story after story after story of church members in their particular congregations that had experienced incarceration of a child or a family member. It happens in upper-class families. It happens in middle-class families. You don't have to live in Compton to have a family member who's been incarcerated. And they said it was an amazing experience. So in community, the first thing that we need is we need to create a community where we really bear each other's burdens, where we really connect to each other, and we know that it's okay, your burden is okay, and I want to help you carry it. We also want to help people know that they're not alone. The second thing I think that's real important is we want to understand our own struggles and what we do when we're not feeling safe and what happens to us because 
When we can understand ourselves, we can help other people understand how they respond to their own safety issues. I do have a book at the back of the room. It's called Five Days to a New Self, and it helps you understand. My husband and I wrote it. It helps you understand your own triggers and how you respond to things. I think we only have about three copies. They're $15, but Ramella can also mail you a copy, and we won't charge you for uh, uh, anything. Here's, here's one up here, too. We won't charge you for the mailing if you're interested. But we need to begin to understand our own triggers because we have to begin to understand, are my fears real or are they imagined? So, you've heard my story, right? You know that you can imagine that for me, I don't want anybody in my family to ever do anything that would be unsafe in any way. <laughs> do you think I could get a kind of controlling about that? Yep. Yep, my husband, a job that he was leaving, they wanted to give him a hot air balloon ride. I was pregnant at the time and had a year old. I told him, no way are you going on a hot air balloon ride, okay? That was back in the days before I'd identified my own triggers and before I knew my own coping when it came to unsafe situations. But I have learned and I have grown and I have begun to understand what's a real fear and what's an imagined fear. So my daughter in the Arab Spring, do you remember the Arab Spring several years ago? She's living in France. We get a telephone call from her. Mom and Dad, we've decided for spring break we're going to go to Morocco. Honey, have you seen the news? Do you know what's going on in northern Africa? Yes, she says, we have. And we have decided that in order to kind of lay low and not have any issues, we're going to speak French and carry our backpacks and not suitcases so they won't know we're American. My husband and I talked to our children on speakerphone in their adult years. And it's a good thing, not FaceTime, speakerphone, because a lot of times we go, don't, don't respond now. So we said, well, you know, uh, we're a little nervous about that, um, but let us think about it. And, and if you do some checking, uh, get back to us. We'll talk about it next week. Now, mind you, you can't tell a 24-year-old what they're going to do. But fortunately, we have the kind of relationship with our daughter that she would have wanted our blessing on that. So she calls us back the next week, and she says, so one of the girls that's going with us, her dad works for the FBI, and he thinks we'll be fine. And, you know, the woman whose harp I play, she's a harpist, I went to her house this week, and her husband works for Interpol, which is the international policing organization, if you're not familiar. And I talked to her, and she called her husband, and he thinks we'll be fine. It's hard to argue with the FBI and Interpol, right? <laughs> so we let her go. We blessed her in her trip to go. And she had the most amazing time. She has pictures of riding a stallion on the beaches of Morocco. She has pictures of riding a camel into the Sahara Desert. And I'm here to tell you, if I was still letting fear drive my decisions, I would not 
have encouraged her to go. I would have robbed her of something that was really critical. Was my fear real or was it imagined? We have to begin to help people understand. Now, if we're going to deal with safety, right, we have to acknowledge that some things are not safe. We have to be able to help people understand when they're in a situation that is safe and they're just imagining that it's unsafe or when they're in a situation that is literally unsafe. One of the reasons I do hate to turn on the news today is all the hashtag me too. All the relationships that are surfacing that from um, the outside, people around people thought those relationships looked safe. We have to begin to help people understand that some things are not safe and some relationships are not safe. This is really hard in the church, I think, sometimes because we really want to encourage people to get along well. But sometimes we're in relationships that make us feel bad about ourselves. Sometimes we're in a relationship that every time we walk away from the relationship, we feel kind of off. We feel incompetent. We feel unsafe. How do we help people? You know, if someone uh, in one of our seminars earlier in the week, somebody brought up the issue of domestic violence. We're seeing it more. We're seeing a lot of domestic violence. There's quite possibly some domestic violence going on in your church. But there's also these issues of emotional, viol uh, emotional abuse that are now starting to surface. And they're really, really hard to identify sometimes. And so what I want to do is I want to encourage you that if someone comes to you and they're feeling unsafe in a relationship, again, if you can help them identify what is it about the relationship that's making you feel unsafe, then you can help them more. You know, uh, we have a member on our board, her name's Annette Altmans, and Annette has started an organization called The Men Project. And we have some of these handouts on the back if you're interested, but it helps identify what's called either double abuse or emotional abuse in relationships. And it has a whole list of things on the back that we may not think of as abusive, but that help us identify a relationship that might be abusive. I thought I'd just pick on a couple of them. Minimization. If someone is in pain and someone around them is constantly minimizing their pain, you're not hearing it. It's not safe. I have a friend right now, my best friend in the world is dying of cancer. I'm so sad about this. And she has a doctor that when she goes into the doctor's office, last appointment she went in, she smiled at him and he said, oh, you must have woken up on the right side of the bed this morning. What's making you so happy today? Typically you're not in a good mood. Typically when you come in here, it feels like 
you got up on the wrong side of the bed. It's her oncologist who has talked to her multiple times about he doesn't like the fact that she brings in a list of questions and he wants her to be happier and not look so concerned. That's minimization. That's not hearing somebody's pain. We have to be aware when people are minimizing other people's pain what that looks like. Another one on here is denial. A fundamental refusal to accept responsibility by living in a false reality. For those of you that work with couples, um, I've been a marriage and family therapist for 35 years now. And still, when a couple comes in for marriage counseling, who do you think they're there to fix? <laughs> Their partner. <laughs> it's not about me. It's not about what I do wrong, because you see, if I could just get my partner to do what I need for them to do, I would be fine. And that's true in all marriages. But if you're working with a couple and one of the people never accepts any responsibility, that's a problem. That's a red flag. Because in relationships, we all do things that are wrong. And if you're seeing a couple where only one person is right, that's going to be a problem, and you've got to start addressing that. You've got to help them identify that. The other one that I picked out of the few that I just wanted to pull out is joking or sarcasm. Sarcasm is not funny. Um, sarcasm is belittling. Uh, I know a lot of us think it's a form of humor. And occasionally, I think it can be a form of humor. But when you're sarcastic all the time, when that's the way you communicate with other people, can't you take a joke? When you just put me down in front of a group of people and I feel hurt by that, and you're looking at me and say, oh, Sharon, I was just kidding. That's just a joke. That does not feel good. You know, we're, we are fragile people. I don't know if y'all are as fragile as I am. <laughs> amen. We got an amen here on the front row. But we are fragile people. And it is painful when people say things wrong. If you preach, if you're teaching on Sunday morning, if you're leading a group and 95 people walk out and tell you what you did well, which that typically doesn't happen, but if that were to happen, and three people walk out and tell you what you did wrong, who do you hear? The three. All of us are built that way. Our brains left in and of in themselves will automatically go negative. So if we're in a relationship with somebody that consistently thinks it's funny to put us down, to be sarcastic, it erodes our confidence. It erodes our ability to know who we are. So sometimes relationships aren't safe, and we've got to begin to help people identify when they're in a relationship that's unsafe. And I'm not going to say, please hear me say, that doesn't mean they have to get out of the relationship, but that does mean the relationship needs to change. And relationships can change. Annette, 
Altman's, who wrote this, she and her husband are still married. They went through a lot of counseling, and she is, she is all over the country telling their story. And Bucky is supporting her in that because he actually didn't understand some of the things that he was doing that were so difficult for her. So identify whether or not a relationship is safe or unsafe. Or a physical, there may be a physical safety issue. You know, this couple I told you about, Pam and Calvin Kressel, that live in Compton. They're afraid, some people that live in Compton, when their kids walk out the door in the morning that they're going to be shot. That's a real fear. As opposed to some of us who are afraid our kids are going to make a B on their paper instead of an A. Now, both fears have validity. We want our children to do well, but when we're working with people on safety, we've got to begin to help them identify what's really unsafe and what can you do about it. We need to empower people that are in unsafe situations. In our neighborhood, they tell us to not go on a walk after 10 o'clock at night. Do you think I go on a walk after 10 o'clock at night? <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't do that. Another thing that I, we do, Terry and I do, we have a security system on our house. It makes me feel safe. Now, since we moved into the neighborhood, I would tell you that the tagging that was on the building across the street from me has reduced. And the people who used to sell drugs at the auto body shop across the street from me aren't there as much anymore because I learned the Pasadena non-police emergency number. <laughs> and I called the police a lot. And it actually moved people away from that area to sell drugs. But those are the things I did. We got an alarm system. I learned the number of the Pasadena, the non-emergency number of the Pasadena police. And I feel very safe in my home right now because I empowered myself to make a difference. So when people are feeling anxious, we need to help them begin to understand, is it true? Is it real? If it is, what can we do about it? We want to help them learn how to be safe. It is important that you understand and know your own triggers so you can identify fantasy from reality and you can begin to understand what's going on in your fear. Um, does any, I, I just want to stop for a minute right here because of touching on kind of a critical issue. Does anybody have a question about relationship safety or physical safety that I could address? Yeah. Do I ever what? Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. I think I think it's I think you can actually ask people a scaling question. <laughs> I think you say if one is really safe and ten is really unsafe, where would you put yourself on a scale to one to ten in this relationship or in this situation? And if people give you numbers between six and ten. I would say, okay, I've got to dig deeper into this particular situation. I think that's an excellent question to ask people. Because people, it's such a strange dynamic. People, we're, we're afraid 
to be seen as crazy or wrong or bad or a lot of things that keep us from telling people the truth about what's really going on. If I tell you what's really going on in my marriage, you won't love me anymore, or you'll kick me out of the church. We don't do those things, but we've gotten the reputation that we do those things. So we really need to scale, and I think that's a great question. Yeah. Well, the and and you, you know the answer to this question. I think Mark, what I'm going to say: the material that we teach, the Marriage Strong and Relate Strong, believes that all of us have two issues, relationship issues. One is trust, which answers the question, "Am I safe?" And the other is love, which answers the question, "Who am I?" So you've probably worked with somebody that love. They tell you, "But I love them so much." But then you ask the question, but can you trust them? That's a totally different question. And it helps people identify the difference. So I think our identities, like I'm talking about the emotional abuse, the identity can be attacked, or true safety and trust can be attacked uh, in an individual. Yeah. self-actualized or you know we bring it up and she'll say oh mom I don't want to talk about it how do you open dialogue then to like what are you feeling unsafe about what are you hearing you have some good yeah, the question is, when we, when we have adolescents in our home that we're dealing with anxiety, how do we learn about their anxiety? <laughs> and I, I would just say, I would always work for short conversations and not long ones. Uh, I would always work to be insightful. And if you hear something that you're concerned about, to maybe not even address it right in that moment. So, so let's say she goes through a cyclical vomiting session. She, her daughter goes through the cyclical vomiting. The doctors say part of it's connected to anxiety. After she goes through that, I say, you know, can you just help me? What was going on in your life a couple of days before this happened? Uh, and she says, I don't want to talk about it. Say, I understand, and I don't want to talk about it long either, but can you identify maybe one or two things for me that were going on before you went through this cyclical pattern again? And when you do that, and then they say, well, you know, somebody at school told me that they thought I was fat. I don't know, you know, picking something out of the air. But it's a, somebody at school told me it really hurt my feelings. Okay, I would not then dive in to have a 30-minute conversation about self-esteem at that time. I'd say, ow, that was probably really painful, and I'd back away from it. You know, they tell us the best place to talk to our adolescents is in the car when everybody's looking forward. So go on more drives together. <laughs> you know, just can't, how, how do we find, do activities, talk while you're doing activities. You know, if you're going to sit down and have a long conversation with your adolescent, it's probably not going to work.
but um, they they hear more than you know. It, I, I always have to laugh. My husband is a quiet man, um, and when our kids were little, uh, we would have fights about how little he talked at the dinner table. And I would, you know, you need to ask them about their day. You need to do all this stuff. Why are you not more engaging with our kids? And as our kids got into their 20s and mid-20s and 30s, we'd have these conversations a lot, and they'd say things like, you know, Dad, when I was in middle school, you said blah, 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 blah. Or, you know, Dad, that one time that we were on that trip and you said blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, when was he doing all this talking? Where was I? You know, they've never said that to me. They love me dearly. But I've realized that what Terry chose to talk about was much more infrequent and much more long-lasting than maybe the, the uh, paragraphs of information <laughs> that I gave them. But let me go on to the third point. A really important part about learning uh, about safety is to believe that hard times, um, we experience growth, spiritual enhancement, and blessing. And we need to learn how to embrace those hard situations. Okay, the saying, if it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger. Throughout literature, throughout scripture, you know, we talk about, about Romans um, 5. Not only so, but we re rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint us because God poured out his love to our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he's given us. Uh, if I had time, and I've talked too much, but I wanted to, I wanted to put something else in your prefrontal cortex and that was, I was going to have you share with the person next to you about a time in your life where a hard thing made you stronger. Hard times do make us stronger. Uh, Connie Horton speaks for us. Some of you were here when Connie Horton spoke this week. And in her parenting with her children, one of the messages that she's given her children is, you can do hard things. So when her children, as adults now, she gave them this message when they were young, but as adults, they have mommyisms written, her daughter has mommyisms written on her mirror. And so her daughter, I believe, works in Washington, D.C., and when she gets up against something difficult, she says, I know, Mom, I can do hard things. And it is really powerful as individuals when we learn that we can do hard things, and hard things are actually going to make us better. Um, we will grow through hard things. Uh, the other, uh, I, I, I can tell by the age group in the room, at least a quarter of you have adult children. And as an adult, watching adult children, there are so many times that I can see that what my kids really want to happen in their life <laughs> maybe isn't the best thing. And when it doesn't happen, I can see how they grow or how they've learned or how they become stronger or better because of that. And so I know that's true when God looks at me, is that sometimes the things that I believe are the very best things, that are the easiest things, are not the best things for me. And then I also 
believe at a foundational level, and we have to believe this, you know, with our gut and not just because we've read the scripture all our lives, but God causes all things to come to work together for good. All things are not good, but God can make hard things good. And when we're thinking about growth, we have to believe that. You see, my dad committed suicide. That was not good. But when my dad committed suicide, my mother picked my family up, and she moved us to Amarillo, Texas. And I went to Austin Middle School in Amarillo, Texas. And in my eighth grade English class, into my eighth grade English class in Amarillo, Texas, walked a young man by the name of Terry Hargrave. And we have had an amazing journey together. Terry grew up in an emotionally and physically abusive home. So when people hear us speak together, they think, oh my God, I know why those people are so screwed up <laughs> and why they went into therapy. But because of our marriage, and because of the passion that we have for what we do in relationships and because of the passion that we have in Christ and because of what our kids have picked up through us, through our kids as well who are in, in the entertainment business and all kinds of things where they minister, God has affected thousands of lives because of Terry and Sharon Hargrave. And we were pretty messed up when we met each other. And we've had an amazing journey together. And I know that God can cause good to come out of all things that were hurtful. Terry's family ended up in Amarillo, Texas because they were incredibly poor. They were dirt poor. They lived in dugouts in New Mexico and Colorado. And they lost a tomato crop in 1961 that moved them to Amarillo, Texas, because they had not, they moved to Amarillo, Texas with like $10. And his dad got a job at a fruit packing camp uh, company. So you see what I'm saying? Good things can come from hard situations. As leaders, we've got to be telling those stories. How can people find hope if we cannot tell our own story and give them hope by things that have, hard things that have happened to us. Sometimes we wanna hide our hard things. And I wanna encourage you that the best way you can encourage the people you lead and serve is to join with them, know their hard things, and tell your own stories about hard times that you got through and ways that you were made better. I have time for one or two questions, any any questions that y'all would like to ask? Yes. Well, let me, let me just address that for a minute because at Pepperdine here and at Fuller Theological Center, we have trainings for what happens if an active shooter walks into the room. Does anybody here know if nobody in the room has a gun what you're supposed to do if an active shooter walks in the room? Anybody have a guess? 
hit the floor, but what else can you do? I would pick up this chair and I would throw it at them. Because anytime you throw something at somebody, they're going to duck, right? It's an automatic response. Hymnals, books, anything you could throw at an active shooter. So there are trainings. Again, it's a, it's a real fear. Active shooters have walked into churches. It's a real fear. But there are active, there's trainings about what you can do. Um, and I could connect you to the people at Pepperdine that have done the training here that give people a sense of safety that they know something to do even if they don't have a gun. Yeah. Good. Do you know the name? Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, this is such a good question because this is a real fear. It's a real fear. And if we don't do anything about it, people's anxiety just raises. We may not want guns in our church, right? But there are other things that we can do that are active and helpful. Um, one more? One of the things I've understood is breaking glass. So yeah. Break glass and it psychologically deters people. Yeah. Breaking glass. You know, I would have never thought of picking up a chair and throwing it at an active shooter, breaking glass. There's lots of things you can do. It empowers, that's about, that empowers us. So, if you want to stay in touch with the Boone Center for the Family, you got these little cards as you walked in the room. Let me just pray for us in closing, and uh, it's been a joy to have you guys here this morning. Father, we are so thankful for you. We are thankful for what you bring into our lives, and we are thankful that we can rest in you. We are thankful that we can be empowered. We are thankful that you are with us. We are thankful that you've called us to bear one another's burdens. And Lord, as people walk into our spaces, whether it's at the coffee shop or our kitchen table or our office at the church, help us learn how to address people's fears. Help them learn to understand whether their fears are real or imagined. And Lord, help us bring safety, security, and peace to those we lead and serve. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.